Okay, so we just finished up with these. Now, macrovascular complications. What is their claim to fame? What is their claim to fame? Big arteries. MI stroke. What does that tell you? Do those things kill people? Yes. So, diabetic patients are much more likely to die from macrovascular complications. Microvascular complications can kill you eventually, but what they're really going to do is make you wish you were dead. So the person with nephropathy is going to end up on dialysis. Um, I worked with, with the nurse. Her mother was a dialysis nurse. And after working in dialysis for 15 years, she told her daughter, if I ever have kidney failure and you put me on dialysis, I will hunt you down and I will haunt you for the rest of your life. So they were close. What do they do? They suck your blood out. They filter it in an artificial kidney. Different places. Yes, one place, but there's different places they can do it from. Subclavian is quite common. You have to have an artery and a vein, so they have a shunt of some kind or a fistula. Not all at once. <laughs> okay. So nephropathy leads to kidney failure, which leads to dialysis. Retinopathy leads to blindness, and then you can't drive anymore. Neuropathy leads to things like amputations and gastroparesis, which leads to heartburn, uncontrollable, unbelievable heartburn. And of course, impotence. Well, actually, that might make the wife happy. I don't know. Yeah, there, I'll, I'll add, there's a Scrubs episode where Carla and Turk get married, and Elliot says, I can't believe you're getting married. Now you never have to have sex again except when you want to. I know. <laughs> thought you might want to. Opinions vary. All right. Well, now, how do we measure whether a person has diabetes mellitus? Yesterday, some of you checked your blood sugars and your blood sugars were quite high. Thank you, airheads. Now, the gold standard for diagnosing diabetes is fasting plasma glucose. Why do we say plasma instead of blood? Because the plasma is the part the sugar is, is, is uh, dissolved in. So, in order to uh, do a fasting plasma glucose, the person should not eat for how long? Eight hours. Eight hours for fasting plasma glucose. Now, another thing you can do is called an oral glucose tolerance test. In an oral glucose tolerance test, we have you drink a cup of corn syrup. It's really nasty and disgusting. I mean, you think you like syrup because it goes on pancakes, but when you have to drink like a cup of it, it's like... And then we, measure your, then we measure your glucose at one hour and two, two hours and four hours to see what the glucose levels are. Casual plasma glucose is when you just take a blood glucose. So right now you've all eaten, so if I take one right now, that would be called casual. 
However, if you've just eaten, we could also call it postprandial. Prandial is the word for meal. So post means after meal. And what do you think the, uh, well, sometimes let's call it PP. So if you see PP glucose, that's postprandial. We can also test the urine for glucose. That's called glycosuria. Now, the limitation here, a lot of older folks who have diabetes will say, well, as long as it's not in my urine, I'm okay. The problem with that is in order to spill into the urine, it has to be over 180. So what's normal values? It's on your things you're supposed to memorize. Okay, so it's about 70 to 99 is normal. And then between 100 and 124 is what they call pre-diabetes. So it's kind of like a gray zone. So between 125 and 180 is an awful lot of room, right? And in between 180 and 125, guess what can happen? All of these things can happen. All of the macrovascular and microvascular complications can happen in that relatively low range where a person's not spilling glucose into their urine. So this is not a good screening tool for diabetes. And then we have something called glycosylated hemoglobin. I think your uh, Laney book calls it glycated hemoglobin. And basically, glucose likes to stick to hemoglobin and form a new molecule that we call glycosylated hemoglobin, or for short, hemoglobin A1C. Now, what's regular hemoglobin called? Hemoglobin A. So once we add glucose to it, then it becomes 1C. So the percentage of your hemoglobin, that is hemoglobin A1C, is a measurement of kind of long-term blood sugar. Now, how long does the red blood cell last? You guys are going to have a really tough time on that final. 120 days, thank you. Four months. So, hemoglobin A1C, it takes a little while for that red blood cell. What? Red blood cell. It takes a little while for that red blood cell to become glycosylated. So, on average, hemoglobin A1C is a measurement of three months of average blood sugar. Got it? Now, normal is going to be below 5.5%. Between 5.5 and 6.5, it's kind of a gray zone. And above 6.5 is diabetic. Now, what's the best way to screen for diabetes? Fasting plasma glucose. Are you trying to make up for yesterday? Yeah. Good job. All right, now, two other things we need to talk about just a little bit. Samoji effect and Don phenomenon. Now, the Samoji effect is caused by blood sugar tends to drop at night. When blood sugar drops, what are the symptoms in general? Dizziness, fatigue, confusion. What else? 
Okay? Chill, tremor, grumpy irritability. Yeah, tachycardia, blood pressure goes up. What does all that sound like? Epinephrine. So when a person has low blood sugar, they have epinephrine release. What else were they going to have released? What other hormone that raises blood sugar? Glucagon and cortisol. So as a result, if a person's blood sugar drops at night while they're asleep, the effect of all of those hormones is going to be to raise up their blood sugar. So a person can have a false high in the middle of the night because of Samoji effect. Now the dawn phenomenon is because of the diurnal cycle. So when does your body normally release cortisol? Well, when you're stressed and in the early morning, before you wake up, about an hour before you wake up, if you're on a schedule, how many of you are actually on a schedule? Okay, like four of you. For the four of you who are on a schedule, your body will release cortisol starting about an hour before you wake up. So sometimes very, very early in the morning, a person will have high blood sugar because of that cortisol release. And that's the dawn phenomenon. Dawn phenomenon. All right, um, here are our normal values. Okay, any questions? You must learn these, live these, love these. Yes, ma'am. It doesn't. No. Now, well, corn syrup is not an artificial sweetener. High fructose corn syrup is not an artificial sweetener. Fructose is 100% natural. Now, to have it in that much concentration is abnormal. We're, just, I'm going to ignore your question. We'll talk about it another time. <laughs> I have to ignore, it's a question that's it's completely irrelevant, irrelevant to our current, yes. If we spend time on that, you're going to get the important questions wrong on the test because you won't have gotten that material. I think that's a good question because it's personal for me sometimes after like, I want to touch medium in the phone, give them sugar. Give them Splenda. Splenda, NutraSweet, and uh, Saccharin all have zero effect on blood sugar. So what it do? It, it tricks your tongue into thinking that it's tasting sugar. That's what it does. Yeah. Yes, it causes cancer, okay? All right, let's move along. General pathophysiology. Insulin is not present in adequate amounts or the receptors that are responsible for it are ignoring it. So what we call insulin-dependent cells cannot uptake glucose. What are the insulin-dependent cells? What are the two big ones that you should think of? Muscle and not the brain. The brain does not rely on insulin. 
Liver. Liver and muscles are the two big ones. Fat cells also a little bit, not much. But liver and muscles. So if your insulin-dependent cells can't take up glucose, glucose levels begin to rise in the, in the blood. The cells are going to start using alternate energy sources, such as glycogen and... How long does it take to deplete glycogen stores? Runners. A few hours, about 22 miles if you're running or walking. They're also going to start using fatty acids. As glycogen stores deplete, fatty acid is going to become the number one source. Then what's going to happen? It's going to start breaking down into ketones. At the same time, those cells will begin to starve, signaling the need for more glucose. Now, when the body needs glucose, what responds to the call? What's the hormone released? Glucagon and cortisol. So those are going to signal your body to be hungry, to start taking fat, breaking it down and making it into sugar. And so that's going to raise the glucose level even higher. It's a vicious cycle. And what will the person look like? What are the three polys? No, the three polys. Polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. Will this person begin to lose weight? Yes, because their fat cells are going to be broken down to be used as energy, which is then going to get peed out because they can't be absorbed in the kidney because there's too much sugar. Now, here's the thing. You've always thought of diabetics as overweight people, right? Now, that's in a long-term disease for type 2 diabetes. But in a short term where someone's in a diabetic crisis, what's going to happen is they're going to burn up all of their fat because they're going to be breaking down all that fat and turning it into new sugar. Now, I guess it's a good weight loss plan if you don't mind the potential of dying. Yeah, but hey, some people took FinFen, so... Because either there's no insulin or their insulin receptors aren't working right. Yes. Remember we had the big discussion about how you ignore something? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes? So how do you end up gaining weight over time? We'll talk about that in a minute. We're not there yet. We're talking about, we're talking about in common right now. And later, we'll talk about type 1 and type 2 separately. All right, so we talked about hunger. We talked about thirst. We talked about this. And okay, we talked about all that yesterday. We talked about all this yesterday. Now, eventually, if the ketoacidosis gets too severe, the patient will eventually go into what we call a diabetic coma. Diabetic coma is caused by blood sugar that is too high that leads to ketoacidosis. Diabetic coma, high sugar, ketoacidosis. Diabetic coma, sugar is too high, 
ketoacidosis. The reason you're going to get this confused is because how do we treat diabetes? With things that lower blood sugar. If you lower blood sugar too much, guess what happens? Hypoglycemia. And if you get too hypoglycemic, you go into a coma. So diabetic coma is blood sugar high. Hypoglycemic coma is too low. Sometimes we'll hear it's called hypoglycemic shock or diabetic shock. Not muscles, fat cells. Right, so remember, in ketoacidosis, you're burning fat so much that the ketones build up in your body and become acidic. If I haven't put up yesterday's lecture yet, but when I do, listen to it again. It's all on there. Not. Okay. Oh, and by the way, sometimes the severity of diabetes has nothing to do with the insulin itself, but it has to do with glucagon. Um, how many of you growing up had a very protective parent? And you'd get into a little bit of trouble and they would like try and fix it and make it worse? Okay. Well, glucagon is kind of like that protective parent in some ways. The severity of a person's insulin sometimes has nothing to do with their insulin. Well, has something to do with it, but not as much to do with insulin. It has more to do with overreaction from glucagon. So, and the glucagon response will vary from person to person. All right, now we're going to talk about type 1. Yes, ma'am? What? That was, in, that was for everyone in general, all diabetics in general. Now we're going to talk about type 1. Type 1 is only 10% of diabetes cases. Um, we used to call it juvenile onset or insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus. The reason these are considered obsolete is because sometimes type 2 is also insulin-dependent, and sometimes juvenile onset, people can get this when they're in their 20s, so they're not really juvenile anymore. Also, people can get type 2 in their teens, so that's not really adult onset either. So the best term for it is type 1. So type 1 is characterized by the destruction of beta cells. Remember we said that yesterday? Type 1 is destruction of beta cells. What kind of reaction is it? Type 2 cytotoxic reaction, which is where your body produces antibodies against them. All right. Now... Alpha cells may also be affected, the ones that produce glucagon, or they might stay the same. Just depends on the individual. Now, there is a genetic link. About 10 to 13% of diabetic 1 patients have a first-degree relative who also have the disease. What's a first-degree relative? Okay. So parents, siblings, or offspring. Um, these, are, these are genes that are associated with it, but you don't need to know that. That's just if you really care. Um, it's also, there seems to be an environmental connection. So it seems like in the winter, you have more onset than you do in the summer. And they think that might have something to do with viruses that 
there's a virus that triggers the gene that make or the genes that could make you susceptible, and pal, you get it. Usual onset is childhood or adolescence. It, um, it peaks at age 12. So more people get it at age 12 than any other age. But it can delay into the 20s. When I was working as a nurse practitioner, we, came, we had a patient who came in because he had blurry vision. We checked his blood sugar. His blood sugar was 450. He was like 28 years old. He had type 1 diabetes at age 28. Never been diagnosed before. So it can occur later in life. Not that much later, but older than most of you in this room. Old enough for Fernanda to think that's old. <laughs> 